Would you open up your copy of the Bible, please, to the book of Luke, chapter 11. Today we will consider together verses 1 to 13. Together let's hear the word of the Lord. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me, the door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? I don't know if there is a single passage in all of the Bible that has had more influence on my personal communion with God than this particular passage in Luke chapter 11 and these specific promises that Jesus gives to us here. It's incredible. At the beginning of the Christian life, praying is a lot like a newborn crying. It's just what we do. As soon as we have that spiritual breath by the Spirit, as newborn believers... It's just what we do. The Spirit within us cries out, Father, Abba, Father. And we can't help but pray. That's the faith is by the Spirit is the fuel for that first cry, Lord, save me. Christ is all I need. Save me. So we begin as newborn believers crying out in prayer. We can't help it. It's automatic by the Spirit. Natural, by the Spirit. And yet we know, as we can't help but pray, as we go on through this Christian life, we need a lot of help in praying. And Jesus gives that to us here. One of the disciples asked for it, and Jesus gives us incredible help. Last week, we spoke of our personal communion with God as a relationship, first and foremost, primarily of receiving. And that is so important. We saw it in this very ordinary, domestic episode of life between two sisters. That this personal communion we have with God is a relationship of receiving. Because there was Martha serving, and there was Mary being served. 
right? Martha was giving to Jesus the guest, and Mary was receiving from Jesus the host. Martha was serving a portion to Jesus, and Mary's portion was Jesus. And what was so wonderful in that that little moment in that household was when frustrated Martha protested against her sister, Jesus disagreed. And he said, no, Martha, Martha, you are wrong. And Mary is right. I know that pains you to hear your sister is right. But she's right. She has chosen the good portion. And it will not be taken away from her. And we saw in that passage, this communion with God is not primarily us giving to Him. It's us receiving from Him. Not first giving a portion, but receiving our portion. And our portion is Christ and it cannot be improved upon. So as we focused on communion with God last Sunday, we were especially focused on receiving from God in the Bible through which God speaks to us. Well, this week as we turn our focus with Jesus, we are focused on our personal communion with God in prayer through which we speak to Him. We are so foolish not to take advantage as we ought because the best thing in all of life is communion with God. That is the best thing you have. We have Christ. We receive Him through the Word and through prayer. What are we doing neglecting this gift? Let us take advantage. It says, Jesus was praying in a certain place and when He finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. As John taught his disciples, we need a lot of help. Even the Apostle Paul in uh, Romans chapter 8 confessed that we do not know what to pray for as we ought. Prayer is going to prove to be one of the great spiritual battlegrounds of your life. The sin that remains in you all the way until you are in the presence of God is going to clash relentlessly with the Spirit over this field, in this field of prayer. The flesh has a million points of attack when it comes to prayer. We don't know what to pray for as we ought. We feel envious of other people's prayers or proud of our own. We don't pray nearly enough as we ought or we pray amiss. We pray sometimes just to simply consume it on our own passions as James said. Sometimes we just live with, we live for a, continuously with this low level guilt that we're not praying as we should. And it inhibits the confidence with which we should boldly enter into the presence of God before the throne of grace. So this is going to be one of the great spiritual battlegrounds of your life. The flesh and the spirit will combat relentlessly over this. So Jesus gives us so much help here. and We need to hear his word. He said to them first in verse 2, when you pray, say, Father. We begin with this single word that is quite simply one of the best words in the Bible. 
It is one of the defining words of the New Testament and one of the defining words of the Christian life. Father, do you know what he has given to you? Do you know what you have? I know that this is cliche and so it it doesn't mean to us what it ought, but that we have personal, intimate relationship with the living God? What is that that we have been given? We are not talking to some out-of-touch, higher-up that we don't know, except we know He doesn't care. It's certainly not like that. I, I hope that you had, I realize this is Mother's Day, I, I hope that you had and you can remember intimate moments between you and your father. I can remember, they, you know, not a lot, but several that really stand out. You know, being in my dad's arms as a little boy and just climbing up into his lap and putting my head against his chest and I, re- I remember those, and I hope that you can remember them. But even if you can't, even if you had a distant father or not a father or, or, or something, this is more, this is what prayer is like. Come into the strong arms of your father. That's prayer. Come into the strong arms of your father. That's the first, that's what the first word says. Jesus is taking people here where they have never been before. We're not, you know, the professional scholars. The professional scholars say that if you thoroughly researched all the Jewish rabbinical writings of Jesus' day for mention of God as Father and for that intimate address to God as Father, you would search in vain. They didn't know God that way. They didn't believe in God in this way. Even in the the faithful amongst Israel, they understood God as their Father in a very corporate sense. Yes, God is our Father as, and we are His people, His children, corporately. Jesus is bringing us where no one had been in their minds before, in their relationship with God before. And please, this is how you need to speak to God. I know we use, we use other names for God in prayer, and rightly so. God, Lord, our King, and so on. But know Him in prayer as your Father. Why, why would you come to God in confidence? Why would you come to God in intimacy as you, if you don't know Him as your Father? So this is so key. It is crucial, crucial to your communion with God, to your spiritual life. Now what should we ask for? Jesus gives us these helps in verses 2 to 4, and they're very concise. They're trimmed down significantly from what Jesus gave to us in the Sermon on the Mount. This is a different episode, very similar teaching, simply more concisely given, and yet at the same time, very comprehensive. These helps He gives us. He is not giving us, please understand, He is not giving us a prayer to pray rotely, like I guess rotely is not a word, but a prayer to pray rote, like just so, follow it word by word and have no departure from it, a prayer to pray mechanically. That's not what Christ is giving to us. Jesus is simply teaching to us what our most basic needs are. These are our most basic needs. 
these things. Everyday requests. When we pray, we ask God to accomplish His will, which is the honor of His name upon the earth and in our hearts under His rule. That's a summary of what He gives to us here. The honor of His name in the earth and in our hearts under His rule. We seek Him for daily material supply and for spiritual deliverance. Verses 3 and 4. So I just a couple of follow-up questions to press you, to challenge you before we move on to the next paragraph. Do you pray beyond the needs of your body and others' bodies? And do you pray beyond the needs of your own backyard? You know, beyond aunt so-and-so who has this thing and beyond our own home, beyond our backyard. Do you pray for the forgiveness and the faithfulness of your heart? I mean, if you're not praying to become like Christ, I mean, what are you praying for, right? And, and do you pray that the reign of God would consume this earth with the knowledge of His glory? These are our most basic needs. These are also our everyday requests. For God's reign on the earth and in our hearts, for material, daily supply, and spiritual deliverance. So now, beginning in verse 5, Jesus gives us really the mindset of prayer, the attitude, the, the thinking, the confidence, the feel of it. Again, I want to ask you, do you know what you have in your communion with God? God has given to you more than deliverance from hell. God has given to you more than deliverance from His wrath. And that in itself is great, great news. But He has brought you to Himself as His child, as His adoptive heir of His kingdom and brought us into this intimate relationship with Him. And so when Jesus speaks to us about what communion with God is like, He's given to us the feel of it. The feel of it. And He's speaking to us I mean, we're getting this on authority as, of course, everything that's in the Word comes to us on authority. But, I mean, from His own personal and everyday experience, the disciples are asking about prayer as they find Jesus, as they commonly do, praying. He is speaking to us from His own experience because this is to be our experience. The Son of God's experience in communion with His Father is what you have been brought into by the cross of Jesus Christ. His experience, His prayer life, fellowship with God, that is to be yours. This is what God has given to you. Let us take advantage I want to press you earnestly that you pray earnestly. Hate. Hate the trite, go-to, formulaic, check-it-off, empty, vain, repetitious prayers, the impersonal prayers. Hate those. Don't judge them in other people. 
You can only judge them in yourself, but hate that in you. Fight against that. I mean, it's so easy when you're tired and, and, and you don't have the right thinking to just go to, go to that go-to prayer, the formulaic prayer, the one that you know, that you don't really mean with your heart. Hate that prayer and let us pray earnestly. And in addition to that, before we get into this further into verse five, I want to encourage you to take Jesus at his word and bury your fears and bury your doubts. I say this to all of you, but particularly to the members of our church. Remember what you are covenanted to do for this church, for one another here. We are covenanted together to pray for one another. If we are a powerless church, there are two reasons why. And only two reasons why. We are sinful and prayerless. That's why we would be a powerless church. And who among us does not know that we are not experiencing the power of God as we ought? I do not believe that we are. There are only two reasons. Sin settling deep, ignored, passed over, not fought against, and our prayers remaining on the surface of self-interest and self-concern. And that's why we would not be experiencing the power of God that is ours. Because we have sin and we do not have prayer. When we get together, well, when we are in our own prayer closets, where is the desperation? When we pray together, where is the earnestness? Where is the zeal? Where is the fire? Where is the zeal for the house of God in prayer? I challenge you, as you meet together on Wednesday nights midweek and you pray together, where's the earnestness? Where is the fire? Where's the desperation that God would be working and moving constantly, thoroughly, in a way that we could only say it is of God? Where is all of that longing in prayer as we come together? Who cares what someone else thinks about what you pray or, or whatever? But I think that there's two reasons for that why we might not have that. That earnest prayer together or the fire together because we are worried about someone else thinks or we don't want what God is offering to us, holding out to us and the promises of His Word. We don't want these things badly enough. In which case, well, we have a lot of repenting to do if that's the case. And God will freely forgive And our prayers and our love can return to the first prayers, the first fire, and our love return to the first love. Is God going to hear our prayers? You know, we all wonder at one time or another, and our our confidence goes up and our confidence dips down for sure. But we all wonder, is God going to answer this? And Jesus wants all of our wondering and our doubting put to rest. And so, the way he goes about this is by, he paints this really odd scenario. And he says in verses five and six, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And the answer there is none of us really. <laughs> we would not wake up a neighbor at midnight for three loaves of Fred, of, uh, Fred, <laughs> three loaves of bread for a friend. 
I actually told myself about two hours ago, don't say Fred. Happened anyway. (laughs) None of us would do that. None of us would, you know, be uh, that out of sync with uh, social convention and, and just common courtesy. But if you did go to your min, friend at midnight, I mean, Jesus, the question doesn't stop at verse 6. You understand that? You see the little question mark is at the end of verse 7. He continues on, and he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. That's the end of the question. And the whole thing is rhetorical and the whole answer is not happening. In that time and in that place, you would get what you asked. One commentator, I think he gave a a helpful um, contemporary kind of twist on it. He said it would be like going to your neighbor and knocking on his door at midnight, pounding on his door at midnight and saying to him, my wife is in labor and I'm out of gas. I need help. Your neighbor will come. Your neighbor will help you. And this is what Jesus is saying. Your neighbor is going to come and your neighbor is going to help you. First of all, because of social convention. Back in that day, neighborliness and hospitality were matters of honor and shame. You're aware of the whole honor-shame culture that... I mean, you see it in social media a lot now. It's beginning to come into our culture. People are shamed for standing up for what they believe or, you know, they have a snapshot of them posted on the internet that goes viral and people are shamed. That kind of culture has existed in the the Middle East world for a long, long time. It was very much back in Jesus' day. If you wanted to ruin your relationship, keep someone out, or your reputation, I mean, keep someone out in the cold. That's how important hospitality was. So there's that. But also, it's more inconvenient not to help. Okay, so this scenario, the way that the man responds to the request is, the the scenario is assuming this this one-room house and a family bed. There's one mat on the floor, and the whole clan gets to share it. And, And that's what it was. And so, what good would it do to say from bed, go away. The door is shut. My kids are right here with me and Lord help you if you wake them up. I mean, the next thing that you would hear, if you're saying that from your bed, as it says, with your kids right there, and you're saying this through the shut door, the next thing that you are going to hear, thanks to you, is, who is it, Daddy? You know? So it'd be more inconvenient not to help. Jesus says he might not get up because he's your friend, but he's going to get up for social conventions and all of that, or he's going to get up to get rid of your rudeness, or he's going to get up to avoid his own rudeness and losing reputation and so on. But this is Jesus' point. This is the point, okay? If you will get what you ask from people when it's the wrong time, and you have the wrong approach, how much more will you have with God with whom none of these social conventions or awkwardness applies? How much more will you have with God? Do you think that there could be a scenario 
where God would not welcome his own inside. If you can get from your neighbor who just isn't feeling it, neighborliness, that is, in bad timing, what will you have when you ask the Lord who never sleeps and whose strength and supply never fail and whose door never closes on those whom he loves with everlasting love. So Jesus encourages us. He says, I tell you. He doesn't have to say, I tell you. But that's his way. John would say, truly, truly. That's how he would recall. He's saying, I'm making a point. It is a crucial point. You better get it. This is essential for your life and your walk with God. Please pay attention. Please get this. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. God will never tell you no because He's busy with something else. God will never tell you no because He's not in the mood. God will never tell you no because He's running low. None of those things exist with God. So pray, ask, receive. Questions before we move into verse 10. What if I ask for a good thing, a legitimate good thing, and God says no? What if I ask for a child, and God says no? What if I ask to keep a good thing that God has given to me already, and God says no, like a child? What if I pray and God says no? There is no, there's no smoothing those things over. No smoothing them over. You you can't soften the blow of that. I want to choose those words carefully. But I firmly believe that if God ever denies what we've asked, that's good. Or if God ever insists on taking what's good that He's already given, it's because God would have more room for Him in you. Because God would have more room for him in you. As Job says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And I want you to hear, God gives all the time. God gives every day. Wake up on an early May morning and step outside and try to say that God does not exist God is good. God gives so that we will know that there is a God. And God takes away so that we will know that God is all that we need. He says in verse 10, For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be open. Listen, every need is up for the asking. Whether it's petty like our daily bread, as that may be, a petty and small request in the days where we can just go to the grocery store. Or whether it's big, like the kingdom coming, every need is up for the asking because our God is Lord over all. I mean, 
I, I know I need some corrective to my thinking when it comes to these things because sometimes I think, ah, small and petty concern, don't pray for that, pray for this. And uh, I'm thinking about praying for the right thing, the good thing, the big things. Isn't He Lord of all? Every need is up for the asking. Our prayers become small and petty if the small and the petty is all that we ask for. So let's pray for all things. But know this, above all, what God wants to give to us is His Son. And through His Son Himself. And God help us if that disappoints us. That the the thing that God wants to give to us the most is, is not a what, it's a who. Not a thing, it's a person. That He wants to give us more of Himself. And if that disappoints us, let us confess that we have stupid idolatry in our hearts. Let us confess that we've had enough of God and we want more of something else. Enough of the giver, we want more of His gifts. That God is not enough, that there is a bigger, better, and more satisfying portion somewhere else. If God wanting to give us Himself most of all in any way disappoints us. He wants to give you Himself. He says, I am here for the asking. Take advantage and ask. Listen to the Lord Jesus and ask. Asking you will receive Christ. Seek the face, seek the glory of God in the face of Christ and you will find. Knock and Christ Jesus Himself will be open to you. So let us pray boldly, continuously. Let us pray confidently. In verses 11 and 12, we have another absurd and kind of troubling scenario here at the beginning. He says, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If your child comes to you for something that he really needs, and you give him something dangerous or deadly instead, I mean, who would? Who would, right? There are exceptions. There are exceptions. But this is not expected. We don't say that's that's normal. We, we we read of such cases and we say that there's no way to explain that but the demonic. Even in our society, which is a truly evil society, you do not want to go to prison for harming children. There is a special kind of punishment not necessarily sentenced by the judge, but there is a special kind of punishment reserved for the worst of society who inflict the worst, our worst upon children. And I know of, I know of a man, I, I know a man who went to prison for such, and he did not have a good. As messed up as our society is, we don't expect anyone to Inflict evil upon children. This would be like if your child, you're about to cross a busy street and your little child, just imagine your little one reaching up for your hand and you slapping him across the face instead. And that makes the, the parent, that makes the, the parent's stomach churn. You don't want me to give any more examples and you probably, why would you have to, why do you have to say that, brother Mike? I mean, that makes us, 
our stomachs churn. And this is what Jesus is concluding then. And the, the logic is airtight and the logic is beautiful. He says, if you then who are evil, that is, you are natural born sinners and you are sinful and selfish at your core through and through, if you who are evil still know how to give good gifts to your children, you give them the basics, you give them food, you give them clothing, you give them shelter, you give them safety, security, education, you give them those things. If you can do that and you're evil, how much more will the Heavenly Father, who is pure goodness, give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? This is Jesus now wrapping up these couple paragraphs of teaching with this climactic thing. And it's verse 13 here that has shaped my, my thinking and my feeling about my communion with God on a daily basis. This is more than any other passage, along with Romans 8.32, which I don't have time to recite, but those two passages, this and that other. A Sunday does not go by, you know, that you don't hear me praying according to this promise. Give to us your spirit. Okay, so think of it. Let's think it through with Jesus. He says, you, you're evil, you're a sinner, but you give the basic goods to your children. How much more will your heavenly Father, who is pure goodness, give the basic good to those who ask? The most basic good, the most basic gift that God gives, and I'm not saying everyday, common, ordinary gift, but the most basic gift is the Holy Spirit. Let's think about that. According to the Bible, you don't live You have no spiritual life if you do not have the Spirit of God. You are dead, slaughtered on the valley floor, your bones brittle, getting bleached under the hot Palestinian sun. That's the picture, Ezekiel 36, apart from the Spirit of God. Without the breath of God giving you life by the Spirit, you do not live. So the Spirit is the most basic gift of God. Romans 8, 9-11, I was going to have you turn there, but I don't have the time. Listen, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, that means although you will die physically because of sin in you and in this world, yet the Spirit is life because of righteousness, yours through Christ. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So the Spirit of the living God is the most basic gift. Without Him you remain spiritually dead, a spiritual corpse. But by Him, though you physically die, you will be raised to live forever. Consider this also. The Spirit... The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 14 is the down payment of our inheritance. The security, the guarantee that if you have the Spirit, all of the inheritance of God's kingdom is yours to the praise of His glory. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12, no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. No one. Well, you can hear the skeptic. Paul obviously means from the heart. 
No one can say Jesus is Lord from the heart except by the Spirit of God. There's my case for the Spirit being the most basic gift that you have nothing, nothing spiritually or eternally apart from the Spirit. By the Spirit, all is yours. And yet the Spirit who is the most basic gift is the best gift of this life. Jesus actually said, you don't want me to go, but it is to your advantage, disciples, that I go. Because if I do not go, I cannot give to you the Spirit. When I go, you'll have Him. You will not be alone. This is John 14-16 to and I'm paraphrasing. But He is the living God living within His people permanently, breaking the power of sin and unseating its reign from our hearts. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom from what? Freedom to what? Freedom from a hard heart. Freedom from a blind heart. And freedom to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. By the Spirit, we confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. By the Spirit, we live. By the Spirit, we believe. By the Spirit, we have all things in Christ. By the Spirit, we are transformed, conformed to Jesus Christ, into His likeness. By the Spirit, we put to death the deeds of sin, Romans 8. By the Spirit, without the Spirit, there is no love and joy and peace and long-suffering and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and goodness and self-control. But by the Spirit, these things are inevitable. This is what the Spirit produces in us. So Jesus says, pray. Ask that God would give to you the Spirit. We have the Spirit. We are not praying to have one whom we don't have or praying to keep one that we are in danger of losing. But the Spirit's reign in our hearts may expand. And our yieldedness can increase. And His influence and His control and all of these may grow. And so we are praying, again, not for someone we don't have, not for a divine person that we are in danger of losing, but we are praying just according to what we've been commanded in Ephesians chapter 5. Be filled with the Spirit. And the consequences of that in our corporate life together. For the most part, I've been talking about personal communion with God. But when we pray according to this promise to have the Holy Spirit, and we are together filled with the Holy Spirit, the consequences on our life together are very dramatic and very powerful, and I believe can only be attributed to the Spirit of God. We can't ever say, look at us. Look at our, look at our spirituality. Look at our closeness. Look at, you know, any of that. It's all of the Spirit of God. And in Ephesians 5, 
we are promised that being filled with the Spirit, we encourage each other and address each other in song and we sing and we make melody in our hearts to the Lord and we give thanks to God always and for everything in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. That's the byproduct, the consequence of being filled with the Spirit together. So I close. Why would you not pray according to this promise, claiming it with boldness? Why would you not pray to have the Spirit every day of your life until finally the Spirit's work is complete and you are in the presence of Jesus fully, perfectly conformed to Him? Why would you not pray every day for this? The promise is full. I mean, you can't... I'd like to improve on this. What could we add? You don't get better than this. It's full. And it's free. It's free. Jesus says, ask and you will receive. So is your heart set on these things? God, God's desire is to give you lavishly. Is your heart set on these things? Do you long for Christ? Do you want your life and the life of this church to be conformed to Him? Do you want to be possessed by Christ to have your life revolve around Him? And do you want a church of such minded brothers and sisters alive in the Lord and in love together? Then hear the word of the Lord. Heed this promise and pray boldly. Pray full of faith with confidence, continuously, and pray with thanksgiving, believing that as God has promised in His Word, so He will be faithful to fulfill. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, oh, first we thank You for through Your Son You have given us Your Spirit so that we see Your glory in the face of Your Son and so that we confess Him. Jesus is Lord. Thank You that You have given us Your Spirit that our lives be conformed to Christ, producing constantly and increasingly love and joy and peace and all of those nine fruits of the Spirit. We praise You. Oh God, we ask and I pray, Father, that every heart would be set on this. Pray that there would be fire and earnestness. Lord, give to us Your Spirit. For apart from the Spirit of Christ, we have nothing and we can do nothing. We long to experience Your presence increasingly and see Your power. Realize it in us and through us. Father, not for our glory and not for our name. And forgive that sinful bent desire in us. But not to us. Not to us be the glory, but to Your name for the sake of Your steadfast love and Your faithfulness. Exalt Yourself in this church body. Exalt Yourself in the, the church bodies that make up this community. May Jesus Christ 
be praised and live for all the way until glory. In his name we pray. Amen.